Lord, we praise you that you are worthy. And Lord, this morning as we look at a clarification and a really gain an understanding of who you are, I pray, Lord, that our response would be to bow before you in worship. Lord, I pray today that you would be lifted high. I pray, God, that you would open up our hearts to understand your word. And Lord, we have no ability to make these things happen, but Lord, we praise you. I pray, God, that your spirit would enlighten our hearts, that we would see these truths, and Lord, that they would change us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you got your Bibles this morning, if you'd open up to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, we've begun a series in Hebrews entitled The Supremacy of Jesus. This morning, we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, and we're going to be looking at much greater than the prophets. If you were with us last week and we started to think about a simple outline of the book of Hebrews, we would look at it like this. We would see chapter 1, that Jesus is greater than the angels. But actually, if we look at the first three verses of Hebrews 1, he's much greater than the prophets. And he's much greater than the angels. Chapter 1 and chapter 2, as we move into chapter 3 and chapter 4, we see that Jesus is greater than Moses. When we move into chapter 5, 6, and 7, we begin to see that he's greater than the priesthood. He is the fulfillment. We look at chapters 8, 9, and 10, we see that he's greater than the old covenant because he brings in a new covenant. And so when we look at all of these comparisons and all of these contrasts, Hebrews is a book that is demonstrating that Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. Jesus is Lord. Today, much greater than the prophets. Let's read the first three verses of chapter 1. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. When we look at this book and we think about these contrasts, I was reminded of the passage in Matthew chapter 16. When Jesus is with the disciples at Caesarea Philippi, and if you remember in that passage, he looks at the disciples. I'll read it with you. Matthew 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Now, now hold that right there, because when we look at chapter 1 of Hebrews, and we see this continuous revelation, when we see this form, and we see this substance, well, shadow, substance, promise, fulfillment, what we're looking at here is important, because a lot of people 
would have mistakenly thought of Jesus no greater than one of the prophets. And we see that right here. But then the text goes on to say, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And we would expect Peter to respond, and he did. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then we, we read, Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I want you to think about that this morning. Jesus calls out to us, who do you say that I am? And I want us to see that Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, it reveals to us the scriptural understanding of who the Son of God is. This morning, we're going to look at eight observations of the Son of God. Eight observations of the Son of God. And again, much greater than the prophets. Last week, if you were with us, we looked at observation number one. He is God's final word. He is God's final word. God has spoken in many times, many different times, in many different ways. And last week, we looked at all the different ways that God spoke in the Old Testament. Over and over, He spoke. In different ways, we, he spoke directly to Noah, directly to Abraham. Remember Genesis 26 and Genesis 28? He spoke to Jacob in a dream. We saw in Genesis 32 that he wrestled with Jacob in so many different ways, in so many different patterns, but we see that he spoke through the prophets. And when he gets here, and we see that Jesus is now God's final word. I'm not going to re go through the entire message last week, but I want to ask you a question. As we look at the fact that Jesus is God's final word, are you listening to him? I'll date myself because a lot of you, unless you're about 45, you won't understand this example. But when I was a kid, I don't know if you, I would be watching the NBA or it was always on on weekends, the NFL. And there was these stock brokerage commercials for EF Hutton. And the, and the common line in that, commercial was when E.F. Hutton talks, people listen. Anybody remember that beside this old man up here? Yeah, there's a few of you. And you know what? It was always catchy. It was always a little weird, but it was always the line. When E.F. Hutton talks, people listen. But the question this morning that you've got to look at, you see, the, the danger of a passage like this, if we approach it with a heart distant from God, is that we literally gain nothing from this text but an informational analysis of who the Son of God is. But the greater question is, if God has spoken through the Son, are you listening to him? Do you remember Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 as he spoke about their conversion experience? He says, but that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, just as the truth is in Jesus. Do you see that? Salvation involves hearing. Hearing, you know, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. But there's not a one and done when we come into Christ and we come into salvation. And the life of the Christian is one of consistently listening to him. You may be with us today, and you've never come to personal faith in Jesus Christ. And I want you to see, because God has spoken faithfully through his son, he calls you today to submit to his voice. He calls you today to submit to his word, submit to who 
He is, but the second reality of the Son of God is he is the heir of all things. He is the heir of all things. Now, what in the world does this mean? It's important that we see this. I was looking at one of my favorite commentaries in the Exalting Christ in Hebrews series. And, And the author says, in the ancient world, heirs were very, very important. Who was going to inherit a property or a position was a really significant thing socially and culturally in the ancient world. And what he speaks of here, another commentator says, if Jesus is the son of God, then he is the heir of all that God possesses. Everything that exists will find its true meaning only when it comes under the final control of Jesus Christ. We, we, we look at a passage like this, and, and, and you may be here and you have a very low understanding of what theologians would refer to as Christology. That, that's a term that may be foreign to you. It's who is Christ, the study of Christ. And, and a lot of people see Christ as a moral teacher, the one who brought the golden rule. They see Jesus as the great example of love. He is the great example of peace, but they have no understanding of who he is and how he's been revealed in the Bible. And when we look at these terms, I challenge you today to look at them with a humble heart and to even pray within your heart, God, would you show me what this means for me? Would you show me how to respond to this? Because he is the heir of all things. Another passage or a study Bible I was looking at that, that really simplifies it, but help me. Everything that exists will ultimately come under the control of the Son of God, the Messiah. This inheritance is the full extension of the authority which the Father has given to the Son. You start saying, wow, who is Jesus? You start looking at the cults and, and so many of the cults where they completely misunderstand and they, where they really get off base and become heretical is they misunderstand the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But yet what we look at here, he is the heir. He is the heir. Many of the early church fathers believed that the passage that that the author of Hebrews might have been referring to here is found in Psalm chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, where it says, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. This is a passage in the Psalms. It's referring to Messiah. It's referring to the hero that would come, the hero that would be the heir. And this heir is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. It's important that we see this. Everything that exists, exists for Jesus. And this shows and demonstrates his equality with God. In chapter 2 of Hebrews, look at this verse. Because he's going to move from verses 2 and 3. And then he's going to spend verse 4 all the way into chapter 2. Demonstrating how Christ is greater than the angels. And this passage points to the fact that Christ is the heir. Because speaking of the angels, he says, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. Who was it that was to be the one that would hold this place? The Lord Jesus Christ, because he is the heir. He is the one that holds this authority. He is the one that holds this position. I was reading uh, from Stephen Cole, one of my, one of my favorite pastors. And, and one of the things he mentions was how Calvin looks at this passage. And Calvin points out the beauty of how that, 
this word is ascribed to Christ in his humanity. And he goes on and he says, for this purpose that he might restore to us what we had lost in Adam. And Calvin goes on, it hence follows that we must be very miserable and destitute of all good things, except he supplies us with his treasures. And, and you think, what does that mean? How does that work? Well, he is the heir. He is not only the heir, but notice what Galatians says. Paul says in Galatians, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. You think, wait a minute, you mean to tell me in a passage that demonstrates that Jesus is elevated, we're reminded not only of his person, but we are reminded of his work. Because through his work at the cross, the one who is elevated as the possessor, the one who is elevated as the heir of all things, is the one who makes us heirs with him. This, this is beyond amazing because, you know, Galatians 4 says it, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And then he says, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You think about the fact that he is the elevated one. He is the one that is worthy of all. It conveys the idea, as one man says, of dominion and authority, the infinite superiority of the Son to the prophets. And we are heirs in Christ by grace through faith. But thirdly, he created the ages. Notice that phrase, the ages. It's interesting. I'd never seen this before. And, and really, if I would have gone through the passage last week, I was very ambitious. I was going to try to cover all of these last week. And about 40 minutes into the sermon, I thought if we were going to get done by 1 o'clock, we would stop. And I had put in my outline, he created the world. And it's interesting because I just it, I went right over it. I had never noticed that the common Greek word for world is not used here. It's actually he created the ages. And you think about what does that mean? That is fascinating. He created the ages. It speaks about the world and time that's not only past, but time that is future. I, I was, uh, you know, when we think about he is the creator, remember John chapter 1 speaks about Jesus is the creator? Um, Colossians chapter 1, 15 through 17 speaks about Jesus as the creator. And in verse 17, it says, or 16, it says, all things were created through him and for him. I love this because, you know, when Jesus asked Peter or asked the disciples at Caesarea Philippi, who do you say that I am? I want you to think of something here. What is your response to how the Bible portrays Christ? This morning, what are the implications for you that he is God's final word? Are you listening? What are the implications for you that he is the heir? of all things. What are the implications for you here that he created the ages? I, um, I love this. Uh, Cole uh, quotes Bruce here, F.F. Bruce. He says, it means that Jesus is Lord over time and all that has been created in time because he created it. He's God over time. And Romans 11 seems to speak to this glory. 
when Paul says, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be the glory forever. You think about what a fabulous, miraculous, worshipful statement to say that Jesus created the world, but then you just keep going further and you peel layer after layer back and you start realizing that this creation, this sovereignty, it literally being, it brings us to that notion that he is God over time. He's God over time. Spurgeon said, I love to think that he who created all things is also our savior. For then he can create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. Everything changes at this point. This morning, do you believe that Jesus is the creator of the ages? Is he worthy of your worship this morning? The Bible clearly shows us that he is, that he is worthy of all. But number four, he is the radiance of the glory of God. I love how this builds because many have made the mistake when looking at the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they've made the heretical error of lessening the Son and lessening the role of the Spirit to that of the Father. They've seen it to where the Father is the greatest, and then later on, the Son comes about. And then later on, the Spirit does something here and there. But we have to see something. The author of Hebrews is, is, is writing this incredible theme that Jesus is supreme. And you know how it's like he wastes no time. He's going to develop it over and over throughout the letter. But he starts right off the bat. He wants them to understand this is the thrust of what I'm writing to you. This is the heart of what I want you to understand. And at this point, if there's any doubt as to the deity of Jesus this just exclamation point puts an exclamation point on it. He's the radiance of the glory of God. I liked how one ministry put it, as the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, we see that the Son has been a distinct person from the Father, but of same essence as the Father. You may be thinking, well, that's more than I wanted to know. I, you know, give me something applicational. Help me get something for my life. We're going to see this later, but I'll mention it now. I, I love what Dr. Guthrie says. Your perseverance in the Christian faith. Young people, hear me out here. Your perseverance in the Christian faith will be in direct proportion to the clarity with which you see who Jesus is and what he has accomplished on your behalf. See, a lot of people, I, I would gather most everyone who doesn't endure has a very low Christology. They have a very low understanding of who Jesus is. A lot of people, young people, they grow older and they barely know anything about Christ. They've been in churches for 30 years. You could mention some of the deep things of Christ and they literally look at you with no understanding. I, I beg you, if you're going to be a follower of Christ, take your Bible seriously. Don't put it on the shelf. You think you're gonna survive in a world that is completely moving away from God? Do you think that you are going to survive as a Christian in a university setting? 
Do you think you're going to survive as a Christian in the workplace when many of your fellow employees have literally thought that Christians were crazy? Do you think there's going to be any type of resolute heart and boldness in walking with God apart from knowing who he is as revealed in his word? I beg you, I beg you, don't look at this as something that you learn when you're 35 or 40 or out of college. At this point in your life, as a Christ follower, take these verses with all your heart and ask God to open your eyes to see who he is and to understand the greatness of Christ. I beg you to do it. Because what he wants you to see here is that Jesus is not just the epitome of love, the epitome of service, the epitome of world peace. Jesus Christ is deity. Jesus Christ is equal with the Father. He is the radiance of the glory of God. The word radiance is that idea of light, splendor, that emits. This gets so exciting because it speaks. I was reading one commentator that mentioned this, and I'd never considered this idea. But you know when we talk about the Old Testament, and we talk about the tabernacle, and we talk about the Shekinah glory of God. There seems to be an idea of the radiance of God's glory that brings us back to that idea. One commentator says, he's saying, when you see the sun and the glory of the sun, it is a manifestation of the presence of God. I was going to read you something. You remember last week, we looked, or two weeks ago, we looked at the Nicene Creed. We looked at the Athanasian Creed. And, and, and you know, again, two creeds where a lot of people would be like, you know, I really don't care. It's so important because even in the fourth century, they were grappling with who is Jesus Christ? Who is he? How does Jesus Christ relate to the Father? How does it, what is the Trinity? How do we explain it? How do we biblically describe the Godhead? The Nicene Creed, speaking of Jesus, says, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, Begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. I love that. I love that. We need to hear it over and over and over. The radiance of the glory of God. The glory of God, that which speaks of his unchanging essence. You remember the warnings of ever giving to someone else glory that is only that which is to be to Jehovah in the Old Testament. So now we're saying he is the radiance of the glory of God. Do you realize the implications here? Last week I read to you a quote from Michael Reeves, and I want you to think of this. How do we even begin? Every human analogy is going to fall apart at some point, so we have to be careful. But how do we even begin to think about and chew on, and marinate on, meditate on this idea of the radiance of the glory of God. And Reeves quotes a guy from way back, Gregory of Nyssa, and he says, as the light, now think of a lamp. If I had a lamp sitting right here on a table, and think of that lamp that's giving light. As the light from the lamp is, the nat- is of the nature of that which sheds the brightness and is united with it. So in this place, the apostle would have us consider both that the Son is of the Father and that the Father is never without the Son. For it is impossible that glory should be without radiance 
as it is impossible that the lamp should be without brightness. He goes on here, and I know this is heavy, but think about it. This is glorious. The Father is never without the Son, but like a lamp, it is the very nature of the Father to shine out His Son. And likewise, it is the very nature of the Son to be the one who shines out from His Father. The Son has His very being from the Father. In fact, He is the going out, the radiance of the Father's own being. He is the Son. It reminds me of John 14, 9. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. He's the radiance of his glory, John 12. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But there's another pairing here. He is the exact imprint of his nature. Notice the phrase, he is the exact imprint of his nature. I was looking at one resource and it basically listed tons of translations as to how they translate he is the exact imprint of his nature. I'll list some, some to you. I think it's fascinating. One translation says the express image of his person. Another, the very image of his substance. The exact expression of of his essence, the true image of his substance, the exact copy of God's nature. You get the idea. Every one of these translations, looking at these Greek terms, see that he's speaking of the equality of the son with the father. Uh, What is this idea? The, The exact imprint of his nature. It was used in classical Greek of an engraver who would mint coins or an engraving tool, a die, a stamp, a branding iron, a mark engraved. Marita says, for instance, in the making of coins or the making of seals, you had an image that is communicated on a coin or a seal could be pressed into wax and that image would form in the wax. It was a word that spoke of a distinguishing mark on a person or thing. So Jesus is the one, now notice, who is the exact representation of the Father's being of his nature. This is a phrase, I I love this, and it really helped me, because this phrase is, is exactly parallel to what we think of when Paul, in that great passage about Christ, says, who though he was in the form of God, same idea. And then Colossians chapter one, he is the image of the invisible God. But but think about this. I want you to think about the human analogy and I want you to notice how the human analogy falls so short. In the first hour, we were blessed to have the Gross family join us for church. And it, and you can imagine it's a very lively hour. And, uh, 
But did y'all notice something? And I, I've, been, I've been blown away. When Stan got a haircut, have you ever seen anything crazier than how he looks like Ben? I mean, and especially with the mask on. He cut that hair and he walked in here and I could not stop talking. I was in the middle of the sermon. I was like, I can't believe how much you look like Ben. Ben, I can't believe how much you look like your dad. And now cute little Austin. Oh my goodness, he's a cute little guy. Big little chunk. And I'm looking at him this morning and I'm thinking, there is no way in the world, I don't care where they are on the planet, if they're in the same room, people are going to look at the two of them and you know what they're going to say? They're going to know the similarity. They're going to see the representation. But you know what's exciting here? I want you to see how that example, while it's an example, it fars, falls so short of the reality of what the author of Hebrews is saying. And here's what one commentator said. Christ shares the divine nature with the Father as the second person of the Trinity. This is where the divine Son is different from a human Son. No human Son, not even Ben with Stan, is the exact representation of his Father. There's a close relation, but not an exact representation. Christ, however, is an exact representation. He and God are of the same divine essence. If we miss that, we've missed Christianity. If we miss this, we now fall into the cults. If we mess up on who Christ has revealed himself and what the Bible says about his revelation, we have ceased to be Christians at that point. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of his nature. And the next one, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Just tremendous. You know, you look at number four and five that we just looked at. What are the implications? He's God. He's God. You know, there, there were a lot of thoughts about who Jesus was. Some say Elijah and Matthew. Some say one of the prophets. But I want you to make sure you see that God has spoken in his son. Christ is the final word, so to speak. He is the divine word, as John 1 says. And he has revealed to us. He's revealed to us who he is. And, 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 and the implications are that he's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our following. He's worthy of all. But see, number six, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. You know, immediately you think of stuff like sustain. It means to bear up something, to uphold, to have in charge, to govern. I, I, I gained so much from this definition. I was reading Cole, and he said, this phrase refers to Christ carrying forward and onward. Now think about this. This is deep. It's one of those where, I don't know about you, but have you ever read something and you have to read the paragraph like 23 times to try to understand two sentences? That was my story of my academic life. And, uh, but but this, this, this is rich. It refers to Christ carrying forward and onward of all things to the predestined consummation, which is also implicit in their beginning. It refers to his sustaining providence and governance of all things. 
love that. It does not simply mean sustain, but has the sense of active, purposeful control. The use of the present participle speaks that Jesus is continually upholding all things in the universe by his word of power. Young people, the universe is not functioning because of the wonder of naturalism. The universe is held together because he sustains it. He orders it. He governs it. He goes on, if he ceased from doing this, the universe would disintegrate. I was thinking about this. The God is continually upholding all things. All things are under his active, purposeful control. One commentator said, this is not the image of the mighty Hercules or Atlas holding up the world on his shoulders. This is a concept that is a Jewish idea that God is bringing all things in the world to his desired ends by his powerful word. I was thinking about this. You know how you, do you know how you navigate in a world that's crazy and not lose your mind? By submitting and resting to this truth. I want to encourage you. I, there's a lot to be said about the response. You know, um, we're very divided. I mean, even amongst Christians, there's a lot of different political opinion these days. And and, and one thing I noticed in, in watching a lot of the people that I would put as different sides of the political spectrum in the Christian world, each side was going to be incredibly devastated based on the outcome of the election. Now, let me ask you something. If we ever despair and we ever feel as if all things are done and ended, do you realize what we've lost sight of? We've lost sight of the fact that he is a sustainer. You see, how do, what would you say to the Christians in Myanmar today? The Christians in Myanmar that are living under a coup. They're living under a military regime, not knowing what the ramifications are for their beliefs, for their Christianity, for their freedoms. If their hope is in the political system, they'll be in despair. If their hope is in the current events, they will fall and be disheartened. But if their hope is in the God who actively, purposefully brings all things to their end, there'll be hope. It's convicting, isn't it? This changes the perspective. He can be trusted. The next one, number seven, he made purification for sins. He made purification for sins. Now, we're going to get into this later, and we're going to spend a lot of time in this when we get in chapters 5 through 10. But here's what I want you to see. He, he is starting from the very beginning, talking to these Jewish Christians who are tempted because of persecution to sort of put one foot in Judaism and one foot in the gospel and they're looking at all of these ways that Christ is the substance of the shadow. He's the fulfillment of the promise. They're figuring out the temple still in existence. It hadn't been destroyed in 70 AD yet, it looks like. And he wants them to understand he is the greater sacrifice. He is the greater priest. He is the greater temple. He is the greater everything. And he's speaking about the fact that he alone can forgive. He alone can forgive. He made purification for sins. 
And again, you see this link between the person and the work of Christ. And it speaks about purification is a term that typically is not used. But it's speaking about the fact that that he is the one who cleans. He is the one who forgives. He is the one who redeems. And, And it's used in ways that would relate to those that were familiar with Leviticus to those that were familiar with the sacrificial system, those who were familiar with the high priest, those who were familiar, and we're going to see in Hebrews 10, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. He says in verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Similar to what we're reading here, Hebrews 10, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And bring this into the next statement, number eight. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. There's so many descriptions here of his elevated status, of the superiority of Christ, his preeminence, his elevated position, his exalted nature. All of these are together. But, but something to think about that might help you I want you to think about in the Old Testament that there was constant sacrifices. Constant. The priest didn't have time to sit down because the work was never done. The work always had to keep going. But but what he wants them to understand, he wants them to understand that Christ Jesus is the substance of all these Old Testament shadows. He's the fulfillment of all these promises. This morning, you may be with us, and because you're human, you struggle with the idea that the only way that you can achieve God's satisfaction is by being a better person, is by fixing yourself up and being more religious, by, by doing better things. And, you know, and your, your mentality is depending if you got down to you know you got down to the basics and you really got honest and you really saw it transparently you're depending on your work more than you're depending on his work you're you're depending on your work going to church your work being a better person your work getting rid of that habit in your life your work doing this but i want you to understand something here this is huge salvation is not a dependence on my work. It's dependent on the work of Christ, what he achieved at the cross. He went to the cross as a substitute for sinners. And his work at the cross brought about our forgiveness, our purification. He's the only one that can take people that are dirty and defiled like me and like you. And he's the only one that can clean them up. He's the only one that can take away their spots. He's the only one that can make them whole. And his work is so perfect. His work is so complete that once it's accomplished, he sits down. It's done. It's finished. It's perfect. It's complete. I pray today that that you would see the implications of an understanding biblically of who Jesus is, he's the only one who can save you. You can't save yourself. You never will be able to. You can't chase enough things. You can't do enough good works. Christ is the only one, and he is better. He is greater. He is supreme. And as the divine 
God-man. He perfected this work at the cross. He did it completely. He did it wholly. He did it for us. And he sat down at the, the right hand of the majesty on high. One man said, Christ sitting signifies the completion of the work of redemption. In the Old Testament, the priest always stood in the Holy of Holies when making atonement. But Jesus offered himself for our sins once for all and took his seat on high. His sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high also signifies his being in the place of highest honor place of highest honor. So what do we see this morning? He is the God's final word. He is the heir of all things. He created the ages. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He made purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What, think about the implications here. Listen to him. He owns all. We're accountable to him. We're created for his glory. He's worthy of our worship. He sustains us. He's the only, he alone can forgive us. Only his work can satisfy. I read to you earlier Matthew 16. I, I thought about a passage as I was studying this that, that so reminded me of, uh, of here. You remember when Elijah in 1 Kings is dealing with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And, um, and, and you remember that whole scene, and many of you have heard this in Sunday school, where the prophets of Baal were saying that their God was the true God, and Elijah is saying, no, he's not. And he's basically like, all right, I'll challenge you to a duel. Let's go up on the mountain, and we'll see whose God shows up. And there's a passage in there as that whole scene is developing, and it says, and Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. This morning, what's our response? If the Lord is God, follow him. If the Lord is God, follow him. I was thinking about, you know, just practical ways. You know, this morning, follow him implies trusting him, believing in him, trusting in his work, his perfect work at the cross. You know, this morning, you know, when we think about the Great Commission and we think about disciples, one of the things disciples do is they publicly identify with Christ. And the waters of baptism, it, it's a way for them to say, I'm an obedient follower of Christ. I want to follow him. Maybe you've never followed Christ in the waters of baptism. It's not something that saves you, but it's a mark of those who've been saved. It's a mark of a public identification. But this morning, I want you to think about something, Christian. This morning, as you, so many times in, in the Christian's life, and that's why when we think about praying for other Christians we read texts like Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3 where, where Paul is praying that Christians are awakened to what they have in Christ. So many times there's a disconnect in our Christian lives to live practically. You know, there's systematic theology, and so many Christians love their systematic theology, but there's no practical theology. 
they can't live day to day and doing the here and now out of the implications of these great truths. And, and the question I want to ask you this morning is, are you living following Christ? Is the truth that we looked at this morning, does it affect you? Does it affect you day to day? Does it affect your worship in the moment to moment parts of life? I read you the quote from Guthrie earlier, and I want to read it to you again. Your perseverance in the Christian faith will be in direct proportion to the clarity with which you see who Jesus is and what he's accomplished on our behalf. He goes on. That's a very, very important thought. If you and I become fuzzy in our thinking about the identity of Jesus, who he is, if we begin to be fuzzy in our thinking about the nature of the gospel, what Christ has accomplished on our behalf, it is going to affect our perseverance in the faith. So the author of Hebrews says, let's start by making sure we understand Jesus is better than the prophets. He's greater. Would you bow your head? Lord, I pray that as we go into this time of communion this morning, Lord, that our hearts would be thrilled. I pray, God, that if there are people that are with us today that, that never have been converted, they've never experienced salvation, they've never trusted in you, God, I pray, oh God, that your spirit would work. And I pray, Lord, today that, that they would trust you. Lord, that they would see this clarification on Christ. And the only response they could have would by believing upon Jesus to save them. By trusting that Christ is the only one who can atone and purify them from the defilement of sin. Lord, I pray today as Christians, God, that these truths, these characteristics, these observations, Lord, would, would lead us to humble hearts, willing to receive whatever you have for us today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.